Okay, so we are kind of, I would say, continuing our series. I, I don't need to say that every week because we're, we're doing, we're just going through the New Testament, reading through the New Testament together, and we're going to be um, walking through that together, and let's see if I can get the, this thing to work. So that's probably all working, right? Okay, I'm going to have to do this today, or this service. Um, every service is a gift when it comes to, our, to technology right now. We're still trying to figure all that out. I want you to turn to Matthew 15. That's where we're going to be. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 15, and we will read there in a minute, but we are continuing our journey through the New Testament. Um, I am really committed that we're not just going to pass over difficult passages, because um, I have found personally that I've been blessed by a lot of those. Diff- Once I dug into them, they actually became very meaningful, and the passage this morning is an example of that. It has become one of my favorite stories um, of Jesus that I want to go over today. And when we get into this story today, we're going to be in chapter 15, and we're going to be in a story where he has an encounter with a woman who is descended from the ancient Canaanite peoples. So we're going to be reading a story about him descending, about him encountering a Canaanite woman. And before we get into that, we have talked about, um, last week I mentioned that we, in understanding the text, it's really important to know the culture because we need to read with first century eyes and then we apply, we ask 21st century questions. And so culture is extremely important. Um, and we're going to get into that in a second. Um, well, not in a second, we'll just do it right now. So I need to tell you about the Canaanite people. Um, the Canaanites were the people who inhabited the promised land before Israel came into there, even before Abraham came in. It was a land that God had promised to them. And so when Joshua, after um, God set them free from Egypt, got Joshua led the Jewish people into Canaan and where they drove many of them out. And when the Canaanites were driven out, a lot of them went up north into Phoenicia, which was a Canaanite area. Um, Tyre and Sidon, which we're going to read about in a second. So a lot of them went north. A lot of them were driven out east of the river into the high country that eventually became called Decapolis. So that's where a lot of the Canaanite people went. But not all of them were driven out. A lot of them were, were allowed to stay there. And if you know the story of the Old Testament, they intermarried with the Jewish people. And they continually led the Jewish people into idolatry in the worship of their God of, of Baal. We see that all through the Old Testament. Um, and a good example of that is actually Jezebel. I was talking to Pat last night. I said, Pat, who would be, if you thought of a, I can think of a lot of bad guys in the Old Testament. There's not many bad ladies or bad gals. And I said, if you thought of one, who would it be? And she said, Jezebel. And for a Jewish person, she would probably be the most wicked woman of the Old Testament. And Jezebel married King Ahab, and she helped lead the northern kingdom into institutionalizing worship of Baal, and Jezebel was the daughter of the king of Tyre, so she was actually a Canaanite. So she married the king of Israel, of the northern kingdom of Ahab, and led them astray. And because of all of this, um, the Canaanites were really the most bitter and the most, mor- most bitter enemy and the most morally despised people to Jewish people. The Canaanites were at the very bottom of the ladder to them. They were the, the, the worst people imaginable imaginable to them. So knowing that, then um, we come to the text. So we're in chapter 15, and we're going to start in verse 21. And I'd like to invite you to stand as I read the Word of God. You don't have to read along. I'm reading out of the NIV. And we're in verse 21. So leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, 
Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and they urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she said. And he replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and to toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. And this is the word of the Lord. And you may be seated. Again, may we have the eyes to see, the ears to hear. Um, You know, this is one of the most difficult texts in the whole New Testament and in the Gospels. Um, I mean, you can see it. It appears that Jesus is so un-Jesus-like in this text. Anytime somebody encounters this story for the first time, they're always like, what is going on there? Because it doesn't seem like how Jesus normally is. He appears insensitive. He appears uncaring, even condescending to her. Um, Even in one of my triads this week, when this when this kind of text came around, they said, when I read that, it made me very uncomfortable. And the reason, part of the reason it makes it uncomfortable is we know that Jesus gladly accepts anybody, all through the Gospels, anybody who comes to him humbly and in faith, that he's willing to accept them. In John 6, 37, he said, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. I'll never drive away. So we know that's what he's like. So what's going on here? What's going on in this text? And so before I get into it, we need to talk about context, okay? Culture is really important in understanding the Scripture, um, the first century. By the way, somebody asked me a couple weeks ago for a recommendation. If you want a a good study Bible, a lot of times we'll give you the cultural background. I really recommend the NIV study Bible. But not just culture, we also need to know context. And context is true in everything. Have you ever heard like part of a conversation and you misunderstood it because you didn't have the whole context, right? You need context to understand a lot of what's going on in the Bible, and I think especially in this story. And whenever you, if you were to take a class, even a simple class on how to interpret or understand the Bible, one of the most important things they would teach you is the context is really important. In fact, I was taught context is king. You always want to know what's the context, If I come to a troubling passage, even last week, Pat and I, in our reading, I think on Saturday, I'm like, Pat, what what do you think that means? And the first thing we did is you go and read the verses before and you read the verses after and you ask the question, is there a context that helps me understand? And with this story, there really is a larger context that I think gives us the key to unlocking what's going on here. And so what I want to do is take a minute, I want to back up, I want to get kind of high and look at the larger context. And so I want to go back. So in Matthew 14, we have... Um, the story of Jesus. He feeds 5,000 people in Galilee, Jewish people, 5,000 men plus women and children. And when he feeds them, there are 12 baskets left over. Right after that story, he crosses over the sea. Um, Actually, his followers leave in the boat. A storm comes up. He walks towards them on the sea. You know know the story. Peter gets out and then Peter sinks because he's lacking faith. And then as soon as they get to the other side, he's immediately met met by Pharisees who want to have a dispute with him over clean and unclean, which I'm going to come to in a minute, that his disciples were not following the Jewish ritualistic purity laws. And so they had this dispute over that. As soon as they finish with that dispute, Jesus takes them up to Phoenicia, up to this Canaanite territory, and that's where our story happens where he meets this woman. 
As soon as he meets this woman, we're told then he takes them over to the east side. He takes them to Decapolis. Mark chapter 7 tells us that. He takes them to Decapolis. They actually spend several months in ministry there with the Gentile Canaanite people in Decapolis. And I want to tell you just a little bit about Decapolis, if I may. Um, Decapolis was a, um, an area, Decapolis means ten cities. It was an area that was pretty barren and just had villages. And when Alexander came through with the Greek army, um, he left soldiers behind and those soldiers founded ten cities. When the Romans conquered it, they took those cities and built them up and made them these huge, beautiful Roman cities with all the things a Roman city would have, with fountains and and marble streets, and forum, a forum, and gymnasium, and a theater, and a hippodrome, and all the things, including temples to all their gods, a temple to Caesar. So they made these into ten very magnificent, magnificent cities. Um, one of those cities is on the, the west side of the river. Uh, the name that it's pr- primarily called is Bethshan. I know Scott has been there. Pat and I, when we were in Israel, visited Bethshan. And when you're in Israel, you're like, when you go to Nazareth, these places, it's real obvious they were just these little itty-bitty holes in the wall. When we went to Bethshan, it was amazing. The, the theater was huge that we sat in. I felt like I was in Rome. We got to walk on this huge paved street. We got to see these giant baths where people were. I mean, the people who lived in these 10 cities lived in opulence. And the most important thing, though, about, these ten, about Decapolis, this area is, is the rabbinic tradition of that time was, is that was the area where most of the Canaanites had gone into, and that the people who still lived there were primarily Canaanite people who lived in Decapolis. So you have Canaanites in Phoenicia, you have them down in Decapolis. Like I said, he spent several months there, and he was doing teaching and healing ministry. Here's what Matthew says. He says, great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. Does that sound familiar? Those are the same healings last week he was doing in Israel when John came to ask the question. It's the same thing Jesus said. I'm healing the lame and the blind and the mute, so it's the same thing. So he's doing the same miracles in Decapolis, a Canaanite Gentile area that he was doing in Israel. And we learn from the text that they're very responsive. They're coming in faith and being healed, something that his followers would have been shocked and amazed by. And then while he's in Decapolis, finally, there's the story of the feeding of the 4,000. Um, for a long time, I'm like, why did Jesus have to do two giant feedings? And in a minute, I'm going to tell you why. It's actually very significant. He fed 4,000, and once he was done with that feeding, there were seven, seven baskets, seven baskets left over, and then he went back over into Galilee. We know um, from some scholars that he spent three months in this area, um, in Decapolis, which is amazing. So let me tell you something about this feeding of the 4,000 that's actually very significant, um, and the seven baskets that were left over. In the book of Acts, chapter 13, verse 19, it says this, that God overthrew how many nations of Canaanites? Seven nations of Canaanite, uh, seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. In Deuteronomy 7.1 and Joshua 3.10, those seven Canaanite li- nations are listed. And here they are. Those are the seven Canaanite nations that are there. And here's what's really so profound about this miracle. Because in the first miracle with the feeding of the 5,000, how many baskets were left over? Okay, 12. And he's in Galilee. Why is 12 a significant number to Jewish people? Twelve tribes. 
He goes over to Decapolis, a Canaanite area. He does a feeding, and there's seven baskets left over. Why is seven significant to Canaanites? There's 12 Canaanite nations. So he's doing the exact same miracle with Canaanite people that he did with Jewish people. That's really, really significant. Significant. So you kind of, do you see what he's doing? He's trying to show his followers, I'm not just here for the Jews. I'm here for everybody, even the people that you most despise. So I want to come back. Uh, I want to come back to the story, and we're gonna we're actually gonna come back to chapter 15. I want to start in a minute. I want to come to verse 17 because I want to go back to that dispute over clean and unclean. But I want to take a little bit of a breath here because that's kind of the background, the culture, and I think the context of this story. So I want you to do something for a minute that I absolutely hate when I'm in the audience when a speaker asks me to turn to somebody next to me and say something because a lot of times it's a stranger, but I'm going to ask you to do it. So I want you to turn next to somebody next to you, and I want you to say culture. Okay, I should be hearing something. And then I want you to turn next to them and say context. And then I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, I hate it when Garen does this. Okay, and then turn to them and say, would he please get on with the sermon? Okay, okay, very good. So... That's what we're going to do. So the, this whole, the context thing is so important um, because, again, he's been there for three months, but before he heals the Canaanite woman, he has this, this argument with the Pharisees over what is clean and unclean. And we don't, we don't have these concepts in our mind, our culture, this idea that something can actually make me like ritually impure to where God won't even accept me. I can't come before him. But they had this idea that you could be ritually pure and that an object or something could make you ritually impure and then you couldn't come before God. It was a really important concept. And in chapter 15, the Pharisees come and they're like, how come your followers won't follow our rules, our traditions about what makes a person clean and unclean? They're like breaking our rules all the time. And Jesus has this whole debate. And to them cleanness and being about being clean and unclean to them was it was primarily it was purely external that's all they could focus on was externals and that's what religion does right religion always focuses on externals and jesus says if you go to verse 17 so i we're just above the canaanite story here's what he says the, his conclusion of his discussion with them to the disciples don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and it comes out of the body but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart and these defile them or defile that person. For it's out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person or make a person unclean. It's the same idea. But eating with unwashed hands, that doesn't make a person unclean. So he says, what makes a person unclean is from the heart, what comes out of the heart, not what comes from outside in. Does that make sense? It's not about externals. It's about the heart. And he just has this conversation, and he, he's just now, he's, he's going to take the disciples up to Canaan land. And I want you to know for Jewish people, that focus was is that external things are unclean or make you unclean, but not just in, any external things. There were certain things, but there was one thing they were convinced was unclean, and it was Gentiles. The Gentiles were unclean people, and that to get in proximity to a Gentile made you unclean and ritually impure and unacceptable to God. Look at, uh, if I showed you John 18, 28, it says the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. This is before the crucifixion. By now it was early in the morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because he's a Gentile, and to enter his palace would make them unclean. They were convinced Gentiles were unclean people. 
in Acts 10.28. Look at what Peter says when he meets with Cornelius and his family. And do you remember he had the, the dream where God was dropping down all this unclean food? And then God said, what, what I'm making all things clean or what you thought was unclean, it's clean. What I say is clean is clean. And then Peter goes and meets Gentiles, and here's what he says. You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or even visit a Gentile. You can read the whole Old Testament. There is nothing in the Old Testament that says that. It became the tradition of the Jews because they believed the Gentiles were unclean people. And then he says, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. It's, it's like Peter's learning this in the middle of the book of Acts, and as we're going to see, Jesus is trying to convey this to them back in Matthew. But he's like, I'm just now learning, figuring this out. And then I love in Acts 10, just a few verses later, he says to Cornelius and his family, he says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him. He's like, I'm just now figuring this out. And as we're going to see in a minute, Jesus was working on this a long time before this. But it was so ingrained in the Jewish mindset the Gentiles were unclean, that even after Jesus goes to heaven and they're supposed to be on mission to the nations, that it, it's almost halfway through the book of Acts before Peter is really getting that Gentiles are not unclean. Okay, so all of that brings us back to the story. So in verse 21, it says, leaving that place, they've just had this conversation of clean and unclean. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He takes them up to the very kind of place that he's kind of talking about, to unclean Gentile territory, to unclean Gentile territory, right after that conversation. 50-mile trip, by the way. That's like from walking from here to Topeka. Can you imagine that? And they go to Phoenicia, to this region of Tyre and Sidon, to Phoenician territory, to Canaanite land. Can you imagine how their skin is crawling? Because they think to be in Gentile land makes them unclean. Can you see what he's doing here? Because they all, Jews had this Jonah complex of an unwillingness to reach other nations. They didn't even want to go there. So can you see what he's doing? He talks about clean and unclean and immediately takes them to Gentile territory. And that's where they meet this Canaanite woman. So it says in verse 22, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity, she came to him crying out. J.V. Phillips, in his trans, he translates the Greek really well. She cried at the top of her voice. It's a loud cry. And the Greek word is, it's repetitive. I mean, she wasn't just crying once. She was crying out and crying out and crying out. And look at what she's crying out. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. I mean, how significant is that? Lord, three times she calls him in verse 22, in verse 25, and in verse 27. My Lord, you the Lord, son of David which was a title, son of David was a title for the Messiah. You're the creator, you're the Messiah, please have mercy on me. It's really significant. The 12 don't call him Messiah until one chapter later in chapter 16. She's calling him, proclaiming he's Messiah before they do. Um, Matthew uses this in the very beginning of his gospel in chapter 1, verse 1. He says, this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus, son of David, in other words, Messiah, that was, he was proving in his gospel, it was to Jews to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. And so here she is confessing him as Lord and as Messiah. And she says, have mercy on me. When, we, when we've been reading through the New Testament, one of the things that stood out to me a week ago, two weeks ago, you kind of lose track, is I noticed twice in Matthew, Jesus is having an argument with the Pharisees, one time after healing a dude about the Sabbath, something else. I think, I don't remember what the other one was. 
And both times he's talking to them, and they're just so religious and so focused on externals, right? He quotes Hosea 6, 6, two times to them, and he says, God wants mercy, not sacrifices. In the New Century Version we're reading, it was kindness. That's why it really struck me. God wants kindness, not your sacrifices. And he's saying he wants mercy. So they've heard him say this before, that Jesus is like, I'm all about mercy. That's why I'm here. God wants mercy. And she comes crying, Lord, son of David, Messiah, have mercy on me, the very thing he wants to give people. My daughter, it says, she's demon-possessed and suffering terribly. And then that sentence that always catches everybody off guard, Jesus did not answer a word, just silence. You ever had somebody give you the silent treatment, ghosting or, you know, whatever, won't respond? I mean, that's what he does. Doesn't say a word. In every other place in the Gospels, when a person comes in with a request, he gives an answer. Uh, we're going to see in a couple, next week, actually, there's going to be another dialogue he has with some people. He always answers, but this is the one time that he doesn't. And I want to tell you, I am convinced he's not giving her the cold shoulder. That's not what he's doing here. The reason I'm convinced that he was silent is he's waiting to hear, what are my 12, what are they going to say to her, and what are they going to do? Because we just talked about what's clean and unclean, and I want to know, did they hear and did they internalize what I just said? So I'm going to be quiet, and I'm going to see their response. So he's quiet, and eventually they respond, and look at what they say. So his disciples, they came to him and they urged him. Same tense in the Greek, repeatedly. They repeatedly were urging him, would you please send her away? Send her away? Get rid of her? Because one, she's a Canaanite. Two, she's a Gentile. She's unclean. And not only that, she keeps crying out after us. Like, it's really annoying. Okay? Our skin's crawling and she won't leave us alone. Would you get rid of this woman? But he didn't. He doesn't send her away. Instead, he begins a dialogue with her. And I love this. I love this dialogue. And it's part of what is confusing when you read it. And what we're going to see here is this back and forth dialogue that to me is like a great tennis match or like a chess, a, chess, a good chess game. I'm not very good at chess with a move and a counter move. And it's going to be really similar to the conversation he had with the Samaritan woman where he says something and she responds and then he responds. It's, it's this really awesome back and forth. And in this dialogue... Here's what we're going to see him say, because he was quiet. What are my followers going to say? We're going to see him say the things that a good Jew would say to a Gentile person. He's going to say the things that she expected to hear, the things that they would have said if they could talk, and the things she expected to hear from somebody coming from down south. He has a purpose in all this. He's actually going somewhere, so I, I want you to hang, in, hang with it. Now, when they're thinking as Jews, they believed the Messiah belonged exclusively and only to them and to none of the other nations. And so that's the first thing he says. He gives voice to something that they are convinced. And so he says this, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Now again, they should be putting two, two and two together. They should have read Matthew 10 two weeks ago, right? It was just a couple of weeks ago. I feel bad for them because this is extended. Like I, We can read and be like, oh, they should have thought of that two chapters ago. But do you remember in Matthew chapter 10, he sent the 12 out. And he said, I'm sending you only to the lost sheep of Israel in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 10. But interestingly, down in verse 18, as he's talking to them about it, he says, but you will end up before and delivering the message in front of Gentiles. 
So he says, I'm sending you now to the lost sheep of Israel, but you are going to be speaking to Gentiles at one point. So Jesus, it's not just about the nation of Israel, and they should have known that. So she came, verse 25, and she knelt before him. Again, Lord, help me, she said. This word knelt is really significant. Pros cuneo in Greek, that doesn't matter. But pros means before, cuneo means to kiss or adore. And this word means to prostrate oneself before another in worship. She's not just coming before him kneeling and begging. She's coming before him kneeling in worship because she is convinced he is the Lord of the universe and he's the Messiah. Lord, would you please help me? That's her, that's her, that's her plea. And he replies in verse 26, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Ouch. If you know their culture, the Jews called Gentiles dogs. How offensive is that? Palestine was full of these dogs, these wild dogs that, were, that would scavenge and they would get into garbage. They were very dangerous. People stayed away from them because they were in garbage. They were eating unclean food all the time. And so they became seen as very unclean. And because they were unclean and the Jews viewed Gentiles as unclean, they would call Gentiles dogs as a put down. It's how they viewed them. And Jesus, he says this to her. It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to dogs. But he does something really interesting because there's two Greek words for dog. There's a Greek word for the wild, scavenging dogs that they would call a Jew. But there was another word for dog. It was the word for a household pet. And Jews had dogs as household pets. Guess which word he uses? The household pet word. He changes the word they would normally use. He's using the concept, but he's changing the meaning. And she catches on. A lot of commentators say probably when Jesus said this, that he probably said it with a little wink or a twinkle in his eye, right? He's using a word she would have expected, but he's using it in a totally different way to catch her attention. And she catches on because she takes that image and she uses it. So in verse 27, she says, yes, it is, Lord. And I do want to say one thing. The NIV is a really great translation. The old 1984 NIV just said, yes, Lord. Almost any Bible you look at says, yes, Lord. I don't know why the new NIV did, yes, it is, Lord, because that sounds like she's contradicting him. I read it to Pat the other night. I said, Pat, I'm just going to read this. What's it sound like? Uh, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to dogs. Yes, it is, Lord. She said, well, she's contradicting him. She's not. She says, yes, Lord. In the Greek, it's clear. Yes, I agree. It's not right to toss the food for the children to the dogs. But even those pet dogs, the cute dogs we're talking about in a home, even the cute dogs, they get crumbs from their master's table. She seized on his illustration, and she used it to her benefit. And that's exactly what he wanted her to do, frankly. That's what he wanted her to do. Yeah, Jesus, of course the kids get the main meal, but all dogs in a house get leftovers. I mean, you guys know what it's like. I mean, some houses are pretty strict rules, but who can, you know, when the dog comes up next to you with the big eyes, right, who can, who can not just hand them something? And she's like, don't they even get the crumbs? And so she totally bit on what Jesus was really hoping she would say, and it's brilliant. It's brilliant. She's saying, yeah, I don't need a whole loaf, Jesus. You're Lord and you're Messiah. I think a crumb from you is all I need for me and my daughter. I think a crumb is enough, like a mustard seed, right? That's all it takes from you. It reminds me of the woman with bleeding, that she's convinced if I can just go up behind him unseen and just touch the hem of his garment, if I can just do that, I'll be healed. 
It's like, Jesus, I'll take a crumb because a crumb from the Lord of the universe is all it will take. And then Jesus, he, he lets her have the final word. The banter is over. It's like she won the debate, so to speak. Jesus almost always has the final word, but in this case, he lets her finish it with the last word. And then he responds to her amazing faith. In verse 28, he said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Does that word woman sounds derogatory? Like, I mean, I, wouldn't, I don't know that I've ever said that to anybody. Um, but in, in their culture, it was actually a word of respect and affection. Jesus says it of his mother at the, the wedding, the miracle of the wine, when he's on the cross and he says to Mary, his mother and John, woman, behold your son. When after the resurrection, when he's with Mary Magdalene, he says to her, woman, it's a sign of, it's a word of respect and of affection. So he says to her, woman, you have great faith. You have great faith. That word great in the Greek is megas. We get our word mega. You have mega faith. Don't you love that? You have mega faith. What amazing, remarkable, tenacious faith this woman have to go in this banter with Jesus. Um, it just demonstrated great faith. She's like Jacob in Genesis 32. She is not going to let go of her Lord until he blesses her. And that's what he does because he says, your core request is granted. Only two people in the Gospels were publicly praised by Jesus for having great faith. Only two. The Roman centurion, a Gentile, and this Canaanite woman. Not just a Gentile, but a Canaanite. The only two people he ever said, they have great faith. And what I find especially cool is when it's the centurion, he says it about him to the public. He says, I have never seen greater faith than this in all of Israel. But to the woman, he looks her in the eye and he says, you have great faith. So he gives her a request. The daughter's healed. Um, the word just means that she was made whole at that very moment. At that very moment. So what's, what's going on in this story with all this back and forth? John 2.24 says that Jesus knew the heart and the thoughts of everybody. He knew she had great faith, right? The first time she approached, he knew what was in there. So what's going on with all of this? I think his words in this conversation, his silence and this banter was all intentionally designed by him to prompt this dialogue with her because what he was wanting to do was draw her faith out of her. And I think he was wanting to draw it out of her, one, to help her grow in her, whole, her faith, to even get stronger as she encountered him and talked to him. John MacArthur says to bring her faith to full flower. But I think more importantly, he drew her out so that she could reveal and manifest to the 12 Jewish disciples who thought she was unclean, that she could reveal to them the great faith she had so they could start rethinking the paradigms they have as to who was who was in and who was out. Does that make sense? I think, I really believe this conversation, I'm convinced, it was more about them than it was about her. That there were things he wanted to hear from her and there were things he wanted them to hear from her and they did. So I really believe it was about them. He wanted them to see that sometimes the brightest jewels are found in the darkest places. Because going up there, they wouldn't have thought that. And Jesus, I also think he's using this occasion to show his disciples that he came for all nations, that he came for all nations. He is setting, up, he is setting them up 
for the next three months in Gentile territory with Canaanites the whole time. He's setting them up for that so that they'll be ready for that. And I also think he's setting them up for Matthew 28, 18 to 20 after the resurrection when he says to them, you go and make disciples of all, what? Of all nations. So this story to me is the beginning of him setting them up for their mission to the nations. And you know, they should have known. They should have known that the Messiah was for the nations. Uh, in 1 Kings 17, one of the great stories of faith in the Old Testament is of God sending Elijah of hundreds of widows in Israel, sends him out of Israel to Canaan, to Sidon, to Zarephath, to a widow and a child, a woman and a child there, and she takes care of him, and he does miracles for her. They should have known that story. As soon as they walked in and they see a Canaanite woman and, and there's a they know there's a child, this story, you know, should have come back to their mind. They should have known this, right? They should have known all the scripture in the Old Testament. And I'm not going to go through them about Jesus, the Messiah, being for all nations, but I just have one. Isaiah 49, 6-7, where it says, It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel that I have kept. I will also make you a light for the... Thank goodness, right? Because I'm one of those. And so are you. For the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. They should have known all of that. And they've been hanging around Jesus, right? The first healings in Matthew chapter 4, it says the people from Syria and Decapolis, those Gentiles, Canaanites, were coming to Galilee to hear him teach and to be healed. They should have known this. In chapter 8, he heals a centurion servant, the hated Romans. They should have known that Jesus was about more than the Jewish people. He's already encountered. He took them intentionally into Samaria half-breeds, half-Jew, half-Gentile, another hated group by them. He took them to a town because there was a woman there that was ready for faith in him. And not only did she come to believe in him, but that whole village believed in him. They should have known this, right? They've been seeing all of this. And not only that, I think Matthew has been setting us up. He's been setting us up. Because at the very beginning of Matthew, which we've been reading, and they may not have known his genealogy, I don't know, but we've read it, in his genealogy are three Gentile women, three Gentile women that Jesus descended from. Two are Canaanite. Tamar and Rahab are Canaanite women. So there are Canaanite women in the Messiah's genealogy. And then the first people who hear that the Messiah is coming are these magi who live in the east and probably have like a two-year journey. I'm, I'm not, we're not totally sure, but they hear about it. They show up in Jerusalem and they say, hey, the king of the Jews has been born. And it said the whole city was in turmoil because it's like, how do Gentiles know this before we do? He's our Messiah. Like, what? how do you know? And they knew that story. And we've read that in um, Matthew 4 when it says that he was a Nazarene and it was in fulfillment of a prophecy from Isaiah 9, 1 to 2. And Matthew, here's what he says. That Jesus being in Nazareth is a fulfillment of a prophecy that the land of Zebulun and that land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people in living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So you see what's going on in this story? I think this story is all about us understanding that God is for all people and that there is nobody outside of his love and his mercy and his care and his desire to save. I love this story and I love Jesus because of that. So a story that for a long time, when I'd read over it, I'd read pretty quick, like, because like, that's really weird. 
And then I'd get on to the stuff that I liked. And then finally, after a bunch of international students kept asking me about that, and I finally thought, I've got to dig into this, I came to love this story, and now it's one of my favorites. So, we read with first century eyes, but we ask 21st century questions. So what about me and what about you? What about me and what about you? To me, this whole story is really about Jesus' relentless pursuit of the lust. That's what this story is all about. His relentless pursuit of the lust. That he wants his lost children back. That Jesus will go anywhere and he will do anything short of sin to win his lost children back to himself. It's about the un, his unrelenting pursuit of the lost. And so it made me ask the question, how am I doing? Am I being on mission with him and his relentless pursuit of the lost? On the card, this thing that we're doing as we read through the New Testament, I haven't pointed this out much, but on the front, on how to have the quiet time, at the bottom are two lines, and it's two people I'm praying for to know Jesus. And that's to help us be on that unrelenting pursuit with Jesus of lost people. And if you haven't done that, I really challenge you to put the names of two people that you want to come to see know Him as Lord and Messiah, that you are praying for them, and you're praying for an opportunity to share with them. So that's one way we can be involved in this relentless pursuit. Um, the other thing, there's a couple other things. One of them is, I also learned this from the perspective of the woman. You just can't help but the wonder. She knew how Jews felt about her, and she thought probably the Messiah was only for the Jews. And I can't help but to think that if maybe she didn't feel unredeemable outside of the, the saving love of God, you know, she's going to try it out. She approaches him. She's going to banter with him, but she's not sure. Part way through the conversation, she kind of gets the idea, I think he's, uh, he's going to do this, right? Okay. It wouldn't surprise me if there's not somebody in this crowd who doesn't know Jesus yet. And maybe you have the feeling that you're unredeemable that you've done so much bad, you're so bad, you're so unclean to God that there is no way that he would ever want to save you or have the ability. And I want you to know that nobody is beyond the saving power of Jesus. He came for everybody. And so if you're here and you feel unredeemable, I point you to this Canaanite woman. I say nobody is unredeemable to him. Okay. And then for those of us that are here who follow Jesus, this thing about this unrelenting pursuit of Jesus is I want you to know Jesus takes his followers to uncomfortable places and to uncomfortable people. That's what it means to follow him. He will take you to uncomfortable places and uncomfortable people. He took them to a Canaanite, Gentile woman that to them was a dog and unclean. And he'll do the same with us. And so I have a couple of questions about me and about you. And the questions are this, is where are the unclean, uncomfortable places that you never want to take Jesus? Because I think we all have some in our mind. Like, that's the one place I'll never go, right? The place that I'm not comfortable. And not only that, but who are the unclean, uncomfortable people you never want to take Jesus to? I mean, we're human. We all struggle with that, right? Maybe there's an individual. I just would really rather they not do Jesus. Hopefully we don't feel that way. Maybe it's more though there's a class of people or there's a group of people that I don't frankly want that kind of people coming through this door and sitting in here with me, right? So that's my question is for each of us, who are those people? Who's the group? Who's the class? Who's the person? And where's that place that I'm not really comfortable and I really don't want to go there? Because it's all about pursuit. Jesus' relentless pursuit of the lost. That's his heart. That's his heart. So we're going to stand and sing a song here in a second.
about that. I love the lyrics. Before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. Before I took a breath, you breathed your life into me. And when I was your foe, your love fought for me. When I felt no worth, unredeemable, you paid it all for me. Jesus, you've been so, so kind to me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down. It fights till I'm found. It leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you gave yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. There's no shadow you won't light up, no mountain you won't climb up, climbing after, coming after me. There's no wall you won't tear down. There is no, there's no wall you won't kick down. There's no lie you won't tear down coming after me. That's exactly what she experienced, and I think we've all experienced that. So can we end with worship about that kind of Jesus who relentlessly pursued us and be reminded that he is still relentlessly pursuing others, and he wants other people to be able to sing this song with us. So would you stand?
shadow you will light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no valley you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. Wouldn't you agree it's got to be more than us and more than here? Would you not agree with that? It has got to be more than us, more than here, because that's what it was for Jesus. So would you pray with me? Father, we, I'm so challenged by this story. I'm so challenged, Jesus, by you, by your relentless pursuit of the lost and how you, you cared not so much for the lost and your mission to all people. You even drug your 12 into this place that their skin crawled because you want to convey to us your heart for all people. And so, Lord, I thank you this church has a heart for all nations. Help us to have a heart for those people and those places that to us are very uncomfortable, the places we don't want to go to, the people we maybe don't want to be around. Um, You know who those are, and just help us to be that kind of people. Help us to be a people of prayer for two individuals that we care about and we want to come to know you and that we would just be praying for them regularly. So make us a people that are on mission with you, relentlessly pursuing the lost. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as always, 12th, you are sent this week relentlessly. Uh, There's a lot of lost people out there. So let us go and just be the love of God to them. You are sent.